Hey everyone, today on the show I am talking with science journalist and author Caroline Williams. Caroline has written a book called My Plastic Brain. So if you are into making your brain healthier or making yourself smarter, or if you're into the neuroplasticity of your brain and actually changing the neural connections and making your brain bigger, better, faster, stronger, this is the podcast for you. Pull up a chair and buckle up. It's the Original Strength Podcast. So, Caroline, you wrote a book called My Plastic Brain. I did. And in that book, you were trying to take advantage of your brain's neuroplasticity to see if you could improve some things about yourself, like your, your ability to focus or your ability to worry less. Um, can, you, can you just kind of explain uh, the, the premise behind My Plastic Brain and, and your adventures? Yeah. Yeah, because I, where it came from, really, um, so over many years as a science journalist, I spent a lot of time writing about the brain. And sort of from the early 2000s onwards, there was this big thing about neuroplasticity. There were loads of papers coming out showing that the brain changes physically in terms of the connections and um, the speed of uh, messages passing through the brain when we learn something new, when we experience something, um, when we learn something that physically changes the brain. And at the time that was something that was kind of new. We thought at the time that you, there was a lot of plasticity in the brain, a lot of ability to change and, and reroute connections in childhood. But it was thought that by and large, you know, apart from a few bits here and there, that was over when you're an adult. But neuro, neuroplasticity came along and loads of studies show that, no, that's not the case. There were famous studies with uh, London taxi drivers who have to learn the layout of the London streets. And they're all, you know, they're all winding streets from medieval times. Um, and they have to learn it really, really well so that they can navigate by memory. And over the course of a couple of years of learning those routes, they, their bit of their brain, the hippocampus, which is to do with spatial awareness and spatial memory, grew larger. So there were lots of studies like this. There were, there were sort of even short-term studies with people doing juggling, that the areas of the brain to do with hand-eye coordination started showing more connections over just six weeks. So it became obvious that the brain changes throughout our lives, even as adults. Um, and so that was a really exciting time. Then off the back of that, there became like a commercial interest in, okay, let's sell brain training. Let's get people to do memory quizzes and practice doing you know spatial puzzles and things like that and then that should translate into real life change um and and that was big business as well at the start of the the 2000s and then studies started looking at that and saying well okay does that actually do what we what we wanted to do if you do all these puzzles does it make your brain more efficient? Does it mean you're more likely to remember your shopping list or you're less likely to, your brain is less likely to age? Um, and the answer to that seems to be no, not really. Um, and that you get good at what you're doing, but that, that ability doesn't transfer to something else. So you get very good at memory puzzles on a particular app, but it doesn't mean you're any better at remembering where you left your keys or whatever. So there were these two bits of research and it got me thinking, so, okay, well, if these kind of games aren't the way to induce neuroplasticity, is there anything that we can be doing? Because by then I had like a little 
a little list of things about my brain that really bugged me. Like you said, the, you know, my inability to pay attention for a useful amount of time without getting distracted. Um, far too much anxiety, worrying, freaking out about stuff. Um, you know, another thing I wanted to look at was creativity because obviously as a writer, you need lots of new ideas and they do come, but it would be nice if you could control them and they could come as certain, you know, before the ideas meeting rather than like an hour or two later. Um, perception of time, my terrible, embarrassingly bad math skills. Um, so I had all these, this little, little shopping list of things I wanted to change. And I thought, well, okay, if, if brain training games aren't the way to do it, what should we be doing? What is out there that can change your brain in a, in a measurable way? And so I spent sort of over a year going around various labs and saying, you know, of people that were studying these specific things and said, okay, well, go for your life. What can you do? Um, to change my brain. And so I spent a lot of time in brain scanners and having um, brain, well, sort of training, specific training for specific skills. I had um, transcranial magnetic stimulation. I was zapped with an electromagnet in my brain and other kinds of brain stimulation. And uh, I had a really good time. It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like it was it would be torture, but it was really, really interesting. And, and I had a lot of fun going around various labs trying to change um, various bits of my brain. So that was that was where I started. I, I sort of like I challenged myself to improve on what was inside my head over the course of a year. So just to backtrack a little bit, so for, cause they're everywhere, the apps for improving your brain, uh, they're, they, you really only get good at the apps then. So there's a, there's a principle called uh, the said principle, which is specific adaptation to impose demand. Mm -hmm. So you get good at what you do. Yeah. So if I'm playing an app, I, I get good at that app, but that doesn't mean I'm going to be good at anything beyond that app. Yeah. So that was a, that, that's a real thing. So, um, yeah. So you might be good at similar games to the one you've been playing on the app, but yeah, if you're doing a particular kind of puzzle, you get good at that particular kind of puzzle. It doesn't mean you're going to become better at anything else. So and, and then and you also have to keep going at it. It's a bit like, you know, if you're doing a lot of sit ups and you, you get nice, nice, strong abs, you can't then I mean, it doesn't help you lift anything with your arm. And it also doesn't mean you've got strong abs forever. You have to keep doing it. So, yeah, what it's sold is like, do this for 10 minutes a day and you'll get a better brain. It's it's not quite as as sold. I mean, it's better than doing nothing, but it, it's not really doing what it says on the tin. <laughs> So for all the, the, the adventure you had throughout the year, did you discover that, or, or I, I mean, cause I have your book, so I'm trying to, <laughs> did you change your brain? Did you, did, were you successful in, in, in quelching the worry or paying more attention? Like, what did you find? Well, so it was a bit of a mixed bag really. So one thing I found, so with the attention thing, that I think I made some progress with that that has lasted I mean it was a, a few years ago that I did this research now that I went out to the lab in Boston and they zapped me with an electromagnet and they made me press lots of buttons and not press buttons uh, to sort of whether I'd seen something or not um, and I was terrible when I first got there. I they they actually ran this test on me. It's called they they call it don't touch Betty. It's basically you have a, you have a series of images come up on the screen, um, 
and they're sort of black and white images of people with their hair cropped out. So you just see their faces and they fade in and out um, against sort of mountain scenes. And so it's all, it's all happening and you have to keep your attention on this and you press a button every time you see a male face. And when you see the female face, which is Betty, she's the only female you don't touch, but you get so into the sort of rhythm of just pressing the button because it's so boring. So it's easy to zone out and just, oh, oh, whoops, and, and accidentally press the button. So that's where I was at the beginning. I physically could not stop my finger pressing the button until it was too late. Um, they put my results up on a graph um, and I was right down the bottom. They, they do a lot of work with people with ADHD, with post-traumatic stress, because that scatters attention and people can't focus on one thing because they're all over the place. Um, also, they work with people who have had strokes because that does a number on attention as well. My scores were down by the, the people who had traumatic brain injuries, strokes and ADHD. Um, I was ter truly terrible at this thing. They gave me a, a load of training and some brain stimulation. Um, and by the end of the week, it was a it was a close one. By Wednesday of the week I was with them, I was no better. But by the end, something clicked. They were sort of changing dials in the background on this training, which was an, a, a variation of pressing buttons and not pressing buttons when you'd seen something. And they they managed to tweak it for me and it was what changed wasn't that my brain changed because in a few days you know you wouldn't notice a few connections here and there what changed was that I was learning the mental state you need to be in to sustain attention and in their other studies what they found is that when people pour all their attention into really trying hard to keep their focus on something you can't physically keep that up for long because our attention system is set up so that you know you you think of it in this sort of caveman context you, you don't want to be so hyper focused on sort of napping your flint into a spearhead that you don't notice a you know a tiger coming at you you know you, you've got you've got to be distractible because sometimes distractions are important so trying to force yourself to focus on something is exhausting and we can't keep it up for long so what you have to do is really sort of take your foot off the gas a little bit and let the attention sort of fluctuate and sort of go with the flow a little bit, not try too hard, not let yourself skip off too far, but sort of somehow keep it in that middle ground where they call it relaxed and ready. So you're sort of, you know, you're just sort of clipping along, doing your thing. And that was a mental state that I hadn't really found voluntarily before it sort of happened to me after say a, an hour of yoga or something and I was feeling blissed out and that that would come but to be able to practice being in that state was what changed it for me so even now years later if I'm really freaking out and I'm really busy and can't focus I'll take some time out and I'll just go okay calm down relaxed and ready you know don't try so hard and that made all the difference and so that really has helped me. And it's not about changing connections in your brain. It's about learning to drive it better almost. It's like learning what your brain does naturally and sort of going with that rather than trying to work against it. I like that, learning to drive it better. Um, that was, that yeah. was pretty good. <laughs> so you, so 
kind of like then you're um, learning how to get in different brain wave states or flow states yeah. for your attention a little bit. Yeah. So it was kind of just trying to get into that flow and actually really appreciating that that state is quite useful for other things. So that when the creativity stuff came around, when I went to a lab in Kansas to try and to improve my creativity, it was one of those, one of the only things in the book that I turned up and did the baseline tests and I was pretty good at them. So I was kind of quite enjoyed that. Um, and it turns out that not having a laser focus is what you need for creativity. So it kind of, it all comes back to that they're both linked via the bit of the brain that's behind the forehead, the prefrontal cortex. And this is a part of the brain that its job is to rein you in. So in terms of impulse control, when you're, you're supposed to, you know, you think you shouldn't behave in a certain way, um, it's the bit that jumps in and tells you, no, 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 better not do that. You know, we're at work, we should be professional. You know, it's that, it's that bit that reminds you that you can't just do what you like. It also narrows down the options when you're coming up with ideas. And if that bit of the brain is jumping in when you're trying to come up with ideas all the time, then it's narrowing your focus. It's also, so this bit is what you need to narrow your focus when you're trying to focus. But in people like me who struggle to focus, so it's sort of naturally a little bit lower activity in this part of the brain. So, which is good for creativity because what you want is for ideas to bubble up and then this bit not to jump in and say, no, 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 that won't work before the idea is fully formed. So it was kind of nice to see both sides of the coin that, okay, so I may not be naturally set up to be, you know, a productivity machine, but I am sort of set up to be a creative and, and that's okay. And as long as I can kind of ride the waves of focus and not try and force things, then maybe those two things can work. You know, I can get the focus and I can also have the creativity without having to choose one over the other. So that was kind of a nice thing that came out of it that I, I stopped fighting myself quite so much and thought, okay, well, yeah, because not everyone's wired for the same stuff. Right. You know, you know that. So you, in, in some ways you sort of have to go with what you've got and, and make the best out of it that you can. So tell me about, um, cause, cause a lot of people deal with anxiety and worry. What did you mm. find for that? Yeah. Anxiety is a really interesting one. Um, and I think partly it's just my makeup really to, to be that way, but the interesting research that <clears throat> that I looked into. Sorry, I'm not dying of anxiety attack live. <laughs> Why did you ask me that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the research that I looked into to do with anxiety was to do with um, unconscious biases. So this is an idea that kind of appealed to me because it's the idea that a lot of your a lot of your experience of the world is based on your unconscious assessment of what's going on around you at all times so you walk into a party one person will feel anxious because their attention may be drawn to the people who look like they're going well who's that what are they doing here what's she wearing another person can walk into the exact same party and home in on the happy faces and the, the welcoming people and just walk straight in and not even notice the other people and it's partly because 
the idea being that we have these unconscious biases to pick out either rewards or threats. And some people through life experience, through you know, genetic makeup or whatever, some people are more drawn to the negative um, than others. And we're all slightly drawn to the negative because that's in the survival thing. You know, our, our attention will snap to something threatening. But some people are more likely to, to seek out the threatening um, than others. And so I did some, some tests in a lab in, in Oxford here in the UK. And um, yeah, my cognitive bias was definitely skewed negative. The test was there would be a, a dot in the middle of the screen and a happy face one side and an angry face the other side. And you had to press the button when you saw um, a happy face or an angry face, depending on which condition you were in. And the speed at which you choose happy or sad. Um, and then the training was, was the array of faces, all of them unhappy. And then you had to choose, you had to click on the happy face. And the idea with that training was you would learn to, to look for the happy face and ignore the, the angry looking faces. And, and then at the end of like a few weeks training of that, you go back and do the cognitive bias test again. And yeah, you know, in the lab, we saw my bias shift between to, from being quite negative to much closer to the middle. Um, and in, and to me, it did feel like real life that I did have some, some repercussions as well. So one of the things I've always, it's always made me nervous and, and feel anxious. And I'm just about to get out of it because my son's leaving uh, junior school and going off to senior school um, is the, the pickup, the school pickup. And I, lot, I think a lot of parents, would know this when you go into the school playground it's kind of like a, a sea of faces and some of them are friendly and some of them are less so and I've always it's always just made me really anxious and I did find that after doing this training and the cognitive bias shifting that just seemed a little bit less daunting somehow I just and I found myself also smiling more at other people because you really realize how that affects people you know if there's somebody else like me who's just looking for a, a friendly port in a storm um, among a group of people, then you want to be that that one who smiles and says, hi, how are you? And, and not accidentally be frowning and scowling at people. So that was kind of that was kind of interesting. But this was one of those ones like the ab crunches that you really do have to keep these things up. And if you're skewed towards the negative, then it sort of will drift back. So yeah, I haven't kept up doing this clicking on smiley faces so I'm not sure it'll be interesting to see if I did that test again now whether I naturally skewed back towards the um towards the negative I, I can't tell you I'd, I'd like to think not but there's been a few years so hopefully I've become a bit more mellow as well so well do you do you smile more often still I think so well, I like to think so we don't have we haven't had proper school pickup for quite some time because of COVID we've had to do like drive-by pickup so we're all you know so that that challenge has gone away briefly but so with my plastic brain you it's you're diving into the neuroplasticity which to me is a is such a fascinating topic um but you wrote another book that's yeah. not actually available in the US but i think it's available in the UK it's available in the UK so this is this is the UK cover move the new that's a nice cover Pretty, isn't it? Yeah, it is. um, and I can show you the um, US cover. Um, I have a printout of it. It doesn't exist in real life yet. It will look like this. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so it's coming out in um, in January. 
in the US. So it so, kind of got delayed with the whole COVID issues. So to me, nothing goes with neuroplasticity better than movement. And I yeah. have no idea what moves about, but what is move about? <laughs> well, I mean, it kind of came about because one of the things that came out of my plastic brain was that anything that really worked in terms of changing the way I felt, changing my brain, my mental state, whatever, it always has something to do with movement. So whether that was you know, creativity, going for a long walk, um, that was a way to get into the, the, into the zone. Um, breathing, you know, there were, there were lots of things about it. And I started thinking, well, what is it about these movements that helps me think better and feel better? What is it about that? And so I started looking at whether there was any research and it turned out there was loads of research from all loads of different scientific disciplines, you know, for everything from cell biology to neuroscience and exercise physiology in between, you know, there's lots of people looking at the same questions from slightly different angles. And yeah, I wanted to know what is it about movement and are there ways of, of moving that are particularly good for the way we think and feel? Um, and also I was looking at it in the, in the context of our overall sedentary lives. And you know, what effect is that having on, um, you know, is that at all connected to the mental health issues that are so much, seemingly so much more prevalent these days? You know, is it having an effect on our um, ability to think? Is it affecting um, cognitive aging? You know, I just wanted to know that the, what, what are we doing to ourselves sitting around all the time and not moving our bodies? Um, and yeah, it's quite shocking uh, what came out that, that we, there have been links made to everything from um, dropping IQs on a population level to um, Alzheimer's to anxiety and depression. Um, yeah, it's not good for us to not move. That's basically what it comes down to, that we, we evolved as creatures that when brain plasticity and movement are intimately linked, it's a use it or lose it system. Um, and whereas our closest relatives, the, the great apes, they don't have this issue because they are, their physiology is set to a level where sitting around in trees, eating some fruit, sort of, you know, mooching about, not doing a great deal, is perfectly fine for what they need to do. At some point in our evolution, we, we hit upon hunting and gathering and at that point, there seems to have been a crunch point in our evolution in that being able to travel long distances was linked to investing more in the brain. And, and for good reason, because hunting and gathering is a cognitively difficult thing to do. You know, you can't just wander off on across the plains and hope something falls down dead in front of you and ask to be butchered. You know, you have to work together as a team. You have to plan ahead. You have to think the way the animal might be thinking, you know, is it going to a watering hole? Where did it go last time? Um, navigation is a thing. So the, the actually ability of the moving our bodies, walking around and increased plasticity, especially in the hippocampus and areas to do with, with memory, um, became tied together at that point in our evolution and it's never gone away. Um, and so the fact is that if we don't use our bodies, then our brains make sensible savings, as do our bodies, you know, you know, sort of we lose muscle, we also lose some of the cognitive power that we have. So yeah, 
it's a bit scary what we're doing to ourselves really did you find any big bang for the buck movements like that really seem to help the brain or the person in general um so one of the really interesting things was physical strength um so building um muscle power well lift weightlifting has been shown quite quite conclusively to improve um confidence self-esteem reduce anxiety reduce chance of depression and that was really fascinating to me because even if you take away the effects of um cardio so you know people are just lifting weights getting physically strong they're not doing anything to do with their um cardiovascular system you still get these improvements which is kind of interesting because you think it's all oh well running it's the runner's high it's endorphins no it's, it's something else going on and there is some really interesting um, philosophy of, of neuroscience the idea that you have these unconscious um, messages coming from your body that your brain will then interpret as a sort of background level um, information about how things are going in the body so you know how is the how how strong are the muscles? How are the bones doing? How you know how how is the heart rate doing? How you know it, we're constantly being kept up to date with with what's going on below the neck, and the the idea is that maybe if you can improve that messaging to say okay well we're physically capable maybe that allows some kind of worry to stand down a little bit because you feel like you you have this kind of unconscious sense that you're 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 capable in the world. And that that has a spillover effect into how you feel emotionally as well. So that was a really interesting um, thing that that came out of the the strength chapter. And I, I speak to a a really great guy um, called Terry Kvasnik, who's a, a martial artist, acrobat, stage performer, um, and he can do things with his body that are just really you know he can just stand and flip backwards from crouching down. He's nuts but you know the, the fact is that he can he's got himself out of sticky situations like for example riding a moped down a hill a car pulling in front of him and his body just took over and he flipped and did a somersault rolled got up and then his mind caught up and went what the hell happened and he just sat down and you know the fact that his body can do things allows you to have this feeling of you know and in reality you can can cope better in the world whatever the world throws at you so that was a really that was the thing that really struck me I've been lifting since then awesome. <laughs> I've not been doing any back <laughs> so for that that gentleman his body reacted before his thoughts could even catch up to what he was yeah. doing then yeah 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 he, and he said he says the way he describes it his, his body he said he, he didn't think I'm going to flip now he knew it was like it was an embodied bit of knowledge that that was what was going to happen and it was only later he was what what how, what you know how did i even do that um yeah his body just took over because that's that's what he was trained for and his and, and it was you know a reflex so there, um, but, i mean go ahead i'm sorry no, no i was going to say that you know there were studies done you know way back in the 80s with young girls um getting them physically stronger through weights and they found that, you know, in all kinds of walks of life, um, when they had difficult conversations with people, they felt more confident, they felt more able in the world. So there's this idea of, if you use your body and your body knows what it's doing, then you just feel 
a bit more like you can you can chill a little bit really because things are under control the body does have a, a lot of intelligence in it uh, and it's neat how sometimes thinking can actually interrupt it absolutely yes absolutely i remember that i used to play squash when i was at uh, university um yeah and the, and the times that i was thinking okay i'm gonna hit the best serve of my life here that was when it would go out always you know if i just kind of got myself into this sort of zone that i was trying to uh, get in my plastic brain if i if i was kind of in that zone just accidentally then yeah everything would just kind of happen so yeah definitely the mind gets in the way a lot of the time so i'm gathering from from your research and move uh people one thing that would benefit people would be to do resistance training or weight training um yes. was there anything else that stood out uh from a movement perspective that would really help people yeah um one thing that kind of was really interesting was um synchronized movement so whether that's dance whether that's group exercise whether it's you know tai chi aerobic zumba whatever um that does something very specific to us because we are social animals um and there's some really interesting work um to do with what happens when we move in synchronicity with people that it sort of tricks our our brain so what we when we work out where our body is in sense in space the sense of proprioception we constantly know you know where i end and where you begin and that's partly because we have the senses of you know how we feel how we're moving but also because we have information coming in from our senses as well so that all tallies up and we know where i i end and you begin when we move together with somebody the feeling of moving our own bodies in space kind of clashes with what we can see the other person who's moving in time with us and it starts to feel like we're physically connected to them in some way we sort of we, we feel connected to them on a level and that has been found in experiments when people do move together like that they are more likely to cooperate they're more likely to help each other if they need even young children even toddlers if you bounce them on your knee in in synchronicity with you and then you you drop something they are more likely to pick it up and hand it back to you if they've been moving in time with you so that was really interesting to me because the idea of you know getting over our differences with people by moving together is a really lovely thing which kind of feels like the world could really do with and also to beat loneliness because if you feel you know disconnected from people we've got this generation of of young kids who on the face of it are more connected to each other than ever before but yet they still feel lonely if we can get people together and moving together then maybe you feel part of something bigger than yourself so that seems to be something that could be really powerful um that that could come out of it that you could just get people to feel part of a, a larger society and also as part of that as well there was one researcher who was talking about dancing to music and he was saying that you know if you when you move to music's being made by somebody else whether that's being played through a speaker or, or live it doesn't matter that you feel and if you move to that music it sort of feels like you're synchronizing with them so even if you are physically alone and isolated you can move to some music and you feel like you're part of that thing so you feel like something bigger than yourself so i thought that was a really lovely thing and i'm a big fan of kitchen dancing i've been through through lockdown when it, everything got too much it was like crank up the music dance around the kitchen it never fails never fails 
my so, prescription pen. I was actually going to ask you if you've been dancing at home alone. <laughs> to... Oh, yes, all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Get some cheesy 80s pop on. I'm I'm there. <laughs> That's awesome. So so from move movement is so it's really like the key or the gateway to neuroplasticity. Um, I think it, I think it re yes, really, I guess, because not only does it sort of make our physiology kick into action to make those new connections um it also can change it, it it can make the right kind of connections to make us feel better about life so yeah i think it's um a real game changer and i think we've forgotten how to do it as well i think we spend so much time sitting around um walking was another thing the, the simplest thing you can possibly do going for a walk so that was um that sort of links back to the creativity stuff I did with my plastic brain, that going for a walk puts your brain into this, this, um, this state where this activity in the frontal parts of your brain gets turned down a little bit. So it doesn't matter actually whether it's walking or running or cycling or kayaking or whatever it is you like to do. If you're doing it at a, an easy place where you can just sort of turn off, that puts you into the perfect state for ideas to bubble through. So, you know, that's the simplest thing ever. And, and I think people maybe have cottoned onto it a little bit during these, these lockdowns we've had, that people have been going out for walks and having walking meetings a bit more. Um, yeah, so hopefully there's gonna be something good that can come out of, out of all this, that people realize that you don't have to be chained to your desk. If no one can see you, if you're working at home, no one can see you going for a walk, it's fine, go do it. I, I do think if there's, a silver lining and it, I guess it depends on where you live uh some people weren't able to necessarily get out but a lot of people were did have a lot more time on their hands and they were able to take a lot more walks I I know around here I saw many more people walking than I normally did especially during the thick of of COVID yes when I mean in the UK there was a point where you were allowed out once a day to exercise for one hour um, and so you saw, you know, whole families going out together because they were only allowed out once and so they all right. had to go together. And it was great. I mean, for my family, it was amazing because even though we were sort of homeschooling and trying to work and it was all hideous, we went out for a, a, a bike ride or a walk. It made everything all right again, you know. So I think people, it, it kind of made the before and the after so much more obvious. So I was writing um, the end of Move in the first lockdown. Um, and so it was quite high stress situation, but it was also, it was a gift in a way because it really did prove to me that what I was saying was right because, you know, this precious hour made so much difference to everyone's mental health, everyone's ability to concentrate, whether that was on schoolwork or, or paid work or, or just being nice to each other and just feeling okay about this weird time we were going through, you know, that before and after was just so stark that I thought, yeah, this is, this is definitely important. Right on. Yeah. So Caroline, if do people, if, if people want to check out my plastic brain and move, I guess, where, where would they go? And I, I guess in the UK, they can, they can have move now, but. Can. Yes. Yes. I think, um, I'm not sure if there's a way of getting move early in the US. I'm not sure. I think if you go to Amazon, it takes you to the page and says pre-order. <laughs> it says pre-order. Uh, yeah, pre-order. Yes, pre-order it, people. That's what you need to do. Um, uh, you can find out more about both on my website, which is carolinewilliams.net. 
Um, I'm on I'm on Instagram, Caroline Williams underscore science. Um, I'm on Twitter, Caroline Williams Science. Oh no, Science Caroline. Science Caroline is Twitter. Um, so yeah, you can find out more there. I, I think, yeah, I think it might be a, a January that All actually right. you're getting your hands on the book. I will put uh, your website and those ways to contact you in the notes. And I'll also uh, put the uh, Amazon links of your books in there as well. So That's people good. can just check out their fantastic brain that is capable of change. Um, and then they can learn how to change it through movement. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's all to play for. Just go for a nice walk, um, have a dance, lift some weights. <laughs> there's more there's more also in the book as well i won't give away too much but um, no 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 i want i want people to check it out um because that yeah, yeah. this is fascinating stuff and and like movement is it is what keeps us younger smarter more creative happier healthier i mean it's just the yeah it does it does all of that yeah, absolutely and i think we've got so um caught up in you know, doing meditation and stuff for our minds and working on mental health and then separately working on our bodies and trying to get fit and healthy and lose weight and all this kind of stuff. I think we've forgotten that, that there's more to it than, than that, that these things are connected. We're not, a, we're not a, a brain on legs. It's all part of the same thing. Yes. And working on one thing affects the other. And there's so much more to movement than just exercise. You know, that's a very important thing to get across. If you're not a sporty person, if you don't like the gym, doesn't matter. Movement is bigger than that. And, and it can still make a huge difference to your life. Just, just a little bit, just do it, just do a bit. Something that's fun. You heard it here, people. Do something that is fun and it yes. makes your life better. Absolutely. Caroline, thank you so much for spending your time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great weekend.